Hello, Sold viewers. Big Ronnie here with another Sold Stay at Home series interview where we go behind the scenes with some of your favorite artists and show you how they're doing, how they're handling the pandemic, how they are uh, continuing to create work. You know, we'd like to remind all of our viewers, listeners, uh, spa, uh, uh, podcast listeners, please support the artists that we are showing you. Go to their websites, go to their Instagrams, go to their web stores, buy something, commission something, keep the art moving. It's super important that we support each other during these times when uh, some people don't know where the next dollar is coming from. That takes me into today's guest. I am, I've been looking forward to speaking to someone uh, that was in the, the, the printing realm, and I'm really excited today to speak to Gary Lichtenstein of Gary Lichtenstein Editions today. Welcome to the program, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I was super excited to speak with you because not only of the breadth of your experience and the amount of artists that you've worked with, but also that screen printing during the pandemic was actually considered a, an essential business service. How, how, did that, how did that shock you? Well, it, w it was an interesting um, you know, transition itself. About a week or two, a week into it, you know, as shutdown began, I had come over to the studio to check on some things. And Melissa had also, uh, who we work closely together as my partner, we, we noticed that we were getting emails from the, um, the ink suppliers and all of our suppliers saying, we're open for shipping. We're deemed essential as silkscreen suppliers. And, you know, the light went off right away. I mean, this is only a week into it where I said, well, if the ink is deemed essential, then what is it about the, the, what is it about what we're making that's essential? Because obviously I've been, we were working on some art projects, you know, with some artists and, you know, you kind of felt like, well, we have to shut down because art is not deemed essential, when in fact it really is but that's another conversation. So we turned around and said, well, let's just find out right away what, what's essential about it. And we contacted an organization called Urban Pathways, which is a um, fairly large size nonprofit in New York that has 14 or 15 buildings in New York and New Jersey and throughout the boroughs that transitions and houses the homeless. And they've been doing it for 30, 45 years, but we called them up on just a conversation and said, what could we do to help? And they said, signs, simple signs. Communication is our hardest and most difficult problem right now. We have all these eight by 10 COVID signs from the from the, you know, the printer and nobody reads them in our clientele, which is basically transitioning over the years, a lot of at risk and homeless and, and you know, people who needed a, a place to call their own. They weren't reading this. They weren't reading the messages and they weren't watching them. They're not on their computers and they didn't really know the protocol of what was going on from a sign point of view. So I turned to Melissa and I said, you know, this reminds me of the poster era where the value was in the message and not in 
the physical product. While, of course, there's some value in the physical product, it was the message. So they said to us, just how about keep your distance? Or how about, you know, stay six feet apart? This is very early on. And, you know, was, how about wash your hands? And ironically, you know, I've been going, I immediately started going through the drawers looking for images that on their own would convey that message. And I've been working on a, a project with Eric Orr, who you probably know. And I looked at the projects that we had done before. One of them was Max, the robot carrying a sign. It was being used as a, a standalone image. And then it was also used um, for to raise money for the New York City schools. And I called Eric and I said, what about putting six feet away, keep your distance on this, let's give it to them. And he goes, whatever we could do. And immediately they responded to, this is such an upbeat, it's a happy feeling, but it carries the language and it says what we want. What else can you do? And we, Eric and Melissa and I talked and I said, Eric, find some drawings, find, do some drawings, get, get engaged. We don't need a lot. We just need the ones that would work. So we did a wash your hands one, and then we did a uh, wear your mask one. And inadvertently, we were dropping like 100 posters a week over to New York where they were in shutdown they would give them to their essential workers who were staffed 24-7. And they would start putting them up in the buildings, in the hallways, on the front entrance, you know, where, wherever they wanted. So it started to carry a theme. And the visual language and the word language just married between us and uh, Urban Pathways. And we've been doing that regularly now. We've done three, four projects. We did, I, you know, really would rarely say, but we did 400 t-shirts for them that they gave to their essential workers to wear that had Eric's Max the Robot on the back, you know, essential workers. So, and, and what you realize is it's, it's a new sense of language and yet it's an old medium. What is it? It's silkscreen, it's, you know, paper and ink, and, and yes, there's a lot of work in it, but I've never seen where all of these have gone, which is really, for me, the first time in my life. I mean, okay, so now there's like three or 400 posters all over these buildings. Adam, we've gotten a couple of shots of them scattered, but, that's a really nice thing to go to bed thinking about. Is it? Oh yes, you're 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 giving back not only to your community but also to the neediest in it. Uh, I, I see a, a you know for for very different reasons. I see a strong parallel between the work that you did there and the British "Keep Calm and Carry On" campaign during World War II. Right, right. Well, and I always have been fascinated, you know, early on when I got started in the early seventies 
I was involved with working with an artist who were doing rock and roll posters for the Fillmore and you know the early days. I'm always I've always been fascinated by the messaging of silkscreen. Keep in mind, silkscreen is deemed essential because it's a signage technique. You know, every stop signs, you know, street signs, early signs before the digital process, everything was silkscreen. So. Then you go back and you look at during the WPA, during the, you know, I'm looking at that now as another adjunct, another way to go with artists because, you know, they did news posters for all the national parks. That was all paid for by the government to keep people employed. You know, now you have signs going up everywhere. And what's fascinating is if the visual language works, people see them. But if it's real, um, if it's too medical or if it's too um, wordy, it becomes, ah, I'm not going to read that, you know. I've, I've, I think that's why Rosie the Riveter was such a compelling. Exactly. And, and wow. it resonates today. So when you're, when you're working with a client, uh, let let let's let's talk not someone like the uh, the pathways opportunity. Let's let's right. say you're working with a a, a a solo artist. Now, obviously, your technique and your medium and your reputation is flawless. You're you're at this point where you've done it long enough. You're going to get good up op- a good output from what you're looking for. But how do you manage the interpersonal part of it? where someone that doesn't understand silk screening or someone that was coming from a graffiti background that doesn't understand the technology involved, how do you break down that barrier and get them a little more comfortable with what you're doing? Well, you know, they could be familiar with the, the process or not. It, that, you know, they're obviously familiar with their own artwork and how they make it huh? and how long it takes and what they do. And, and some are not, you know, they just say, I don't know how I did this. I just, you know, I do it, but I always use the analogy is what my studio is to an artist is what a recording studio is to a musician. I'm like an engineer, I'm a cre- obviously I'm an artist, I'm a painter, but I'm a creative master. So I kind of can work within the, within the scope of what the artists have as an idea. Or they could show me something and say, well, I really like this. How do we make it into a silk screen? But again, it's, it's like a recording engineer works with a musician who's written the song and he's played the song and he's written the lyrics or, you know, collaborated on the lyric. And they put together something that is uniquely their own as, say, sound engineers or recording studios. But they've also learned how to you know, gift back the creativity to the artist. Because the artist wants to call it his own. You know, he might be the one who signs it. He wants to be able to say, this is mine. So that along with the other notion that I don't make reproductions. I don't, I, you know, that's for, that's for commercial printing. What I do is I recreate the work. I take it all apart and I put it all back together in the way that it, I think it could be printed. But it's never done the way it was painted. 
it's done in a way that it could be printed. So it could be which, you know, which color is layered first and which color is layered second and what colors am I going to make from this layer and that layer. But it's my love of what I do that is oftentimes contagious with their love of what they do that we then begin to work even more closely together. When, when was the first time that you collaborated deeply with an artist like that? What year was it? Um, 1974, 1973, 1974. In fact, that. at the time I was an apprentice. I was working with an artist who was making silkscreens, but in looking through the rearview mirror, that was the experience that said, wow, you know, the two of us are working on something and while he might be the artist, the, re the, the relationship is there where we're doing this together, the answers, the questions, the discussion, and then shut up and let's get to work, you know. The, and it reminded me of something solely based on printmaking. You, you know, you, you're not about to go paint a painting with somebody unless you decide, oh, we're going to collaborate on a painting. But printing takes two different relationships and, you know, very different mediums. So I got hooked on it. Um, I also love the color uh, and, and the color was always dynamic in the early days, whether it was neon or whether it was day glow, whether it was just great red and blue. But I also noticed that there were very few places where artists could leave their own studio or their own creative, you know, their own creative environment and go and work with another artist or another process. So I started to model it after other environments that I'd visited that were making fine art prints, most of them doing lithography or etching, you know, but it was part of the, you know, early 60s evolution. And, you know, I introduced myself to it in the early 70s and just kept doing it. Now, let's talk about where you're doing it. Uh, you're located in New Jersey at Mana Contemporary. Can you tell us a little bit about that space and that, that working arrangement? Sure. Well, you know, I had been in San Francisco for almost 35 years. We moved the studio back to Connecticut where I put it in a barn and I had been working there for a good 10 years when I was introduced to these guys who were putting together a building for the creative arts, Jersey city, close to Manhattan. It, it gave me, you know, the idea, well, if I were to build a new studio, then I'd really like to be closer to Manhattan. And, in the early stages of Mana Contemporary, it was being converted from a um, storage facility, you know, where people would store things. So the guys, you know, Eugene LeMay, and there was an artist, Yigal Oziri, and Moishe Mana, they had already begun the work. And when we came in, we just, you know, took raw square footage and built a studio for it. Since then, it's become a very interesting contemporary art center, housing a lot of different individual studios, a lot of artists, 
It's open 24-7. And, you know, it's a industrial building, so it's got the loading dock and the facilities, the freight elevator and the facilities so that I could move materials in and out fairly easily. Um, being here now six years, you know, I, I would have to say it's been a very safe place to have been able to come during this crisis. While it's predominantly quiet and most people aren't here, it is open 24-7 and they've done a great job making you feel safe. How are you? How are you weathering the lockdown now? Is it you know? I'm not going to ask. Is it affecting the business? Of course, it's affecting your business. But how are you changing? How are you adapting? Are there different things that you're doing? Can you give any tips to younger artists that can navigate this this treacherous time right now? Well, you know, when I started working with Eric or and Melissa on the Urban Pathways, it was a you know, it was a a real breath of fresh air and a gift because to make art and to do what we were doing and to continue it, you know, we were all pretty in sh much in shock. We got to stop what we're doing. So I would say you got to find a thread of inspiration and grab a hold of it and pull yourself forward with that thread. And I was, you know, look, I had no assistance other than Melissa and I, no one was coming into the studio to help work. I got back to printing and is, when I'm printing something that I'm inspired by or is going in the direction, in this case, of helping others, I just held on to that thread of inspiration. And, uh, you know, I'd have to say, now, months later, we're getting back to some of the art projects that we were on. It's going to be difficult. And for young artists as well as established artists, I think more important than ever, the collaborative relationship could be of incredible value because we've been alone a lot. I always love saying uh, in business, none of us knows as much as all of us. So the, right. you know, as long as you can check your ego and your, your styles mesh, uh, there's no reason that two artists shouldn't be able to produce more work than one. Well, and, and include each other in, you know, in the, not only the development, but also in the, in the exposure and distribution so that people begin, you know, there's certain artists that, you know, most artists I've made prints with, have really done, you know, their image is what we're printing, or their idea is what we're printing. Um, one of the unique characters that I work with in the fall, Dave Navarro, um, who'd been doing a lot of work on the street, obviously everyone might know him as a musician, or, you know, the, but Dave was collaborating with other artists whether it was Al Diaz or, you know, their names that I don't even know. And, and you know, I was like, Cuba, way above my pay grade, who is this guy? But he had already come in with the spirit of, this is not all mine. This has got to be ours. And then I know, I said, well, what is this you? And he, no, 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 that's a friend of mine. I asked him to work on things. So 
that in itself was a very, as a very unique individual, like a guy like Dave Navarro and going back, but look what he's done most of his life. He's well, played music with other musicians. We interviewed him in a long form. I had him in my house about two years ago now about that. And what I loved, you're, you're absolutely right about the collaborative, his collaborative nature, because not every artist is a musician and not every musician plays in a band and not every band has to get along with each other. So I think it really depends on the, the level that you're making him feel comfortable at. And I think that has to, a lot to do with you. I'm only speaking with you for 20 minutes and you're already making me feel comfortable. I want to buy a print. I want to come help you out at Urban Pathways, all of that. Well, and it was interesting with Dave Navarro because he was, I guess, in Southern in New Jersey, outside New York, they, they do their filming for um, the, the tattoo show that he yep. does. And a friend of his had called us and said, look, I have this guy and he wants to do this you know, this poster, this project. And uh, ironically, it was from um, part of the election, you know, the Marianne, uh, what's her name? Uh, Williamson. Williamson. Right. And Dave was promoting it. So he said, look, we hadn't met. The image came to me. Dave thought, well, you know, it's gone to the printer. And he's like, you know, so when I'm back, I got to go visit the printer because I just want to double check a couple of things. And I'm kind of knowing this and I, you know, printed up some proofing and I played, started playing with it. The day he walked in, you know, he said, where the fuck am I? And I said, what do you mean? Where are you? He goes, well, I came to visit the printer. Who are you? <laughs> I said, well, I'm the printer. He got, oh, you're not a printer. Look what you got here. And I had to get him to focus on what we were doing together because then he said, well, what are you doing? I mean, I, I want to come in here for a week without anybody in here. How do I do that? Yeah, you can't. <laughs> I said, how do you do it? You're here. What's your schedule? I, it was around Labor Day. I said, so I won't work Labor Day. I'll come in to work on Labor Day. Melissa, Dave Navarro, for some odd reason, he caught on to the story. He goes, yeah, but you got to promise me something. Look, it's not about the money, all that. was." He goes, you got to promise me. You got to make sure I do a lot of the work with you. I want to work. Cool. I said, well, okay, but, you know, you got to get dirty. And I've got to get work. I get Dick. He was all over the studio, cleaning screens, pressure washing screens, jumping on the press. He wasn't faking it. It wasn't photo shoots. This, and I've been around a lot of artists who, you know, they don't know the process and going back to silk screen. Yeah, it's a process. Well, the, the last thing about him, what I loved is when he came here, he took an Uber from wherever he was, no assistant, uh, no handlers, no, just, just coming in, just, hey, man, what, what do you want to do? I had him in the basement. We were talking comic books. I mean, uh, nice guy. I wish him the right. best. I wish him a long career in, in, in public art, uh, for sure. But let, let, let's, let's, let's talk. So there you are with a, with a huge celebrity, huge name, nice opportunity, and one of the nicest guys around. How about the other side of that? How about someone that, you know, gave you a little too much guff? Oh, you got a lot of those. I mean, you know, artists, you know, I, I, 
look, it, you act as a psychiatrist half the time, you know, like, okay, you know, do you like it? You know, so, but that's also been part of my career is the stories. And I never realized that, say, a year or two later, I'd be with someone and I'd say, oh, you got to hear this story. It's, it's not a criticism. It's a story because it's a personality you're describing. You know, I worked, one of the more memorable ones was this B-era poet, Jack Micheline, who back in the early uh, 80s I worked with. And, you know, the, the guy who brought Jack into the studio goes, look, I'm gonna pay you, I just want you to work with Jack, but he's gonna leave every day and go to the track. And then he's gonna come back and he's not gonna be sober. So your window of working with Jack, yeah, limited, but do what you can. Well, Jack, it, it, you know, I was giving him money to go to the track by the third day. You know, I was like, oh, Jack, you're going to the track. Here, bet for me. The, the, the combination, and he did a piece called Father Murphy Loves Mary, and he did, but he was a beat, you're a poet. Honestly, I was always looking for something to ask that would catch him. And then he would go on to these stories of his life. So while you're doing art, you're getting, the, you're getting a piece of the person. You know, I've done that with almost every artist because you're not going to stand around talking about their art with them very long. You're going to make it. So there are other things you can say, well, you know, what, what were you doing in the, you know, last year or what, you know? And I think that's what's going to make the studio for me even more fascinating as I move forward is people are going to come out with these new stories and, you know, how things happened and what you do. Um, Robert Indiana, who's known for the love sculpture, um, the tilted O with the, you know, love. He and I worked together years ago in the 2014, 15. He was a historian on his own work and on everybody that was engaged with him. And he had stories that, you know, he made sure sometimes it, he had two people in the room who really didn't like each other just to see what happened, yeah. you know. Um, you know, I've had artists in the studio who come in, they say, oh, I love what you're doing, and then they spend the next half hour criticizing. Mm -hmm. But it's their work. But it's, I'm doing the work, so I'm open for criticism, and you didn't pay enough attention to the red, and to the yellow, and to the orange. And just kind of take it in and then move on. What, what do you listen to while you're working? Well, for music-wise, mm -hmm. a lot of the time I don't have music on because I'm working with assistant and we need to talk about what we're doing and pay attention. When I'm alone and I turn the music on, I listen, you know, early rock and roll, you know, a lot of California music, New York, you know, you know, Whatever stimulates another Dave Navarro story is I turn to him and I said, so do you want to listen to music? He goes, no, nah, I hate music. 
<laughs> I thought, oh shit, I guess he doesn't want to listen to music. He goes, where's the, where's the music? I got to turn it on. I said, you control it. You know, he put on the Grateful Dead. But get when he put it on, I said, oh, I love the Grateful Dead. I was part of their family in San Francisco. He goes, so was I. I used to go on tour with them. That's why I like it. It's not really like my like of music, but I like the story behind it. Now, what I loved was that he printed the band's original posters on, on a copy machine, laying out all the different little pictures and this and that. He didn't print them, but he ran them all off, and then he went and we pasted them. So he was, he was doing street art and, and public art, you know, for vandal purposes, you know, even before he really got started making money in music. I loved that. Right. Well, and, and, you know, I was not involved with much of the street art scene for most of my career because I was focused on contemporary artists that were in galleries or that were, you know, working on their own. And that was where, you know, when you asked me about moving to Mana, what was funny was I hadn't realized it, but I gravitated towards the, not only the street art scene, but we gravitated towards the hip hop scene. And I've worked like with a photographer, Jeanette Beckman, who did a lot of photography in the early hip hop days, Say Adams. I saw Jonathan Mannion was also on your list of artists. Jonathan Mannion. And then I realized, I didn't know anything about what they were, what, it was not my culture. So the one person, the artist I worked with, Charlie Ahern, um, who he did the movie Wild Styles. Mm -hmm. Charlie is like a historian. So I said, Charlie, if we're gonna work on this project together, my, what I want back out of it is, I wanna know who all these people are and what is going on. So, in the studio at the time, if you were a fly on the wall, you could have learned as much as you could have ever absorbed by listening to some of these people talk about it. That's great. Well, uh, Gary, you know, this, uh, this time is, is really crazy now. And all we're really trying to do is, you know, just, just show that life is going on, show that art is continuing, show that you, the favorite people that are telling stories through their work are still doing it and it hasn't gone away and the human spirit is not broken. Uh, you know, leave us, leave us with a couple of words uh, from Gary Lichtenstein editions about, about how you guys are going to hold up in the future. Well, there's the, obviously that, you know, there's no certainty, you know, but that's gone with doing something you love and loving what you do for, 40 years. So throughout the career that I've had, there's been more uncertainty than certainty. But the one piece of certainty is I've always found projects to work on. I don't know how I'm getting paid. I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't know how I'm going to, you know, move or do any of the basics, which we're now really faced with mm -hmm. and getting a lot of like, you know, the realization that we're not as worse off as the next person. Right. And we have to care about that chain. We're not alone in this. So part of it is having the experience of, you know, owning up to the fact that the career might be, you know, 
de- incredible to perceive. It's not been without a lot of different, you know, pain and suffering or good times, bad times, whatever you call it. This is an unprecedented time. And the one thing that I am most concerned about is that we don't all go digital as a result of it. And yes, I I welcome our, our ability to do what we're doing today and I'm marveling it. But I'd hate to see artists go digital because it's fast and it, it, it gets across to everyone. And then we really do lose the connection to art being made, ideas being passed between us. And so even whether it's young, emerging or whatever, we all at this stage, I think wanna, as quickly as we've had to transition into digital, I welcome those that kind of turn it off for a while and we all come find each other, keep the distance, you know, the six feet or whatever, but we then get back to exchanging the ideas and, you know, keeping moving them forward. And help each other, you know. I love it. I, 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 from your lips to God's ears, as they say, and let's, let's hope that everything keeps moving and goes back to normal uh, soon. But Gary, this was a great chat. Thank you very much for your time today. Before I let you go, can you please tell our viewers where they can find you online? Yeah, it's uh, Gary Lichtenstein Editions.com. No, it isn't. Oh. GL Editions. It's GLEditions.com. Um, Instagram is Gary Lichtenstein Editions. And we're here in Jersey City at Mata Contemporary is our location. I can't wait to come see you when this is all over. Keep doing the good work and thank you very much, Gary. Thanks.